Welcome back to the Transforming Cities podcast. Each episode highlights ideas around rethinking the way cities are evolving. We discuss planning, design, technology, development, and other fields that contribute to the urban experience. On this episode, we're speaking with Antoinette Marie Johnson, founder of Cohere, a creative agency focused on place-based storytelling. When it comes to careers, the whole reason I love coming on podcasts like this and sharing is because you don't really know you're designing your career until pretty much hindsight occurs and you're 10 years out. And, you know, Malcolm Gladwell always says that you become an expert at 10,000 hours. I think I did the math once in 10,000 hours. It breaks down to, I think, like seven or eight years. So it takes about seven or eight years to become a quote-unquote expert in what you're doing. Her superpower is uniting often siloed stakeholders so that they can unite in shared goals, helping both cities and companies reach their full potential. Antoinette writes regularly for publications like Forbes and works alongside small retail and restaurant businesses that help neighborhoods keep their unique local charm. I'm your host, Chris Arnold. Let's jump right in. Antoinette, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So I really appreciate you making the trek here. You're visiting Denver from the East Coast. And I wanted to kind of know right off the bat if you've always lived on the East Coast. Yeah, this was one of the highlights of my trip. So appreciate the chance to connect. I'm definitely an East Coast girl at heart and have always lived there. Was born about an hour west of Philadelphia in a town called Downingtown, PA. Um, And now I'm based in Brooklyn full time. Although I do go back and forth to Philadelphia because our headquarters is there. Yeah. Why Brooklyn? Why not Brooklyn? (laughs) (laughs) Well, why not like downtown New York versus Brooklyn. Yeah. Brooklyn can get a little bit of a bad rap these days. Yeah, I think... It's like a little bit too cool, maybe. Ooh, I don't know if there's such a thing. Okay. Especially in our world, right? We got to be yeah, cutting edge. Right, yeah. <laughs> I actually was hesitant to do Brooklyn, too. Mm. We looked in Manhattan for about two months, not super aggressively because we're both entrepreneurs living together in a relationship. So... We didn't have enough time to actually look for places. But when we did, we found that Manhattan was just ridiculous. Like you hear all the horror stories, but for literally seven to $10,000 a month, you were looking at just not great places wow. at all. Yeah, And that to me is, I've always grown up lean and I grew up with a single mom. So, uh, you know, budget was real challenge. And so for me, spending that kind of money made no sense at all. So... I convinced him to look at Brooklyn. We got off the L train in Williamsburg. Right there was a Whole Foods and Equinox and then lots of mom and pop stores because the L was rumored and announced to go down for over two years, which would have just killed retail. So mom and pop places didn't have the rents go through the roof. So there's this beautiful mix of like, I have four antique and reused sustainable, you know, fashion places on my block alone that are owned by like one woman who sort of built it from scratch on her own. And then I have Equinox, Whole Foods, two wine stores. Like there's this beautiful mix of big box and mom and pop. Mom and pop, yeah. So the retail's amazing. That's great. But the L never did shut down. There was a 2019 miracle and the, the mayor stepped in and 
the L's not shutting down, but we got an incredible deal in an old church that's been refurbished as an amazing apartment oh, wow. in Brooklyn. And I, I literally, I feel like a poster child now for Brooklyn. I'm like ordering uh, blue algae bowls with chia seeds mm, on top. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but once you go there, it's really hard to adjust your your desires when all the wellness is at your fingertips. And we have a three-story place inside of a church. It's yeah, crazy. That sounds awesome. Really good deal. That sounds perfect for someone with your background too. Yes. Old church, apartment, three floors. Uh Well, I guess on that note, tell me about your background as a student and how did that lead to your, I'll call them young professional years. Like, let's rewind the tape for a second. Love that. Uh, I went to Temple University for, finally chose what I wanted to do and it was geography and urban studies basically urban planning. And one of my core focuses was GIS. I was kind of a map geek, just obsessed with the design of maps and the physical representation of information. The fact that you can really manipulate how things are seen on either historical or political level through the design of maps. Even at, you know, digitally now, you zoom all the way out, you might not see a county or a city you zoom all the way in, you might see every little road. Mm. It just fascinates me how perception and behavior is all combined in one amazing, fascinating thing that could often quickly and easily be outdated too. Yeah. Did 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 you learn about maps at a young age? Like what pulled you or drew you to maps specifically? Yeah, I think it was a unique combination of circumstance at the time. I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to major in. My Growing up with a single mom, she was never encouraging of my creativity. So where I would excel early on in art class, it wasn't really harbored in on or, or encouraged. And because my mom would always say, you know, if you're going to college, you're not going to go to art school and be a poor artist. Mm. So it was kind of drilled into me to pick something that had some form of, you know, income that at least was acceptable to my mom. Right. (laughs) And uh, having gone to Temple University, that's in North Philadelphia. And I don't know if you know much about North Philly. Not too much. But it's like a third world country. Mm. And it's really, really a tough scene. And I think as I was trying to figure out what I was interested in at that young age, I realized that... I was starting to feel depressed. It was hard for me to leave my place. And when I really dialed in on what was bothering me, it was that I felt like a little privileged suburban white girl walking around North Philly, and it just didn't seem right. There was an 11-year-old selling weed on my front doorstep. And truly, there was like dilapidated buildings Mm. and blight surrounding Mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. So I kind of leaned into that and said, what if I studied more about this transformation of urban core, learning about why this socioeconomic divide exists, particularly in industrial cities, especially East Coast and Detroit. And so taking more and more classes, I was just really drawn to that. But my creative itch and desire was still there. And I think Maps were this nice little combo of what I was drawn to in terms of urban demographics and political change. 
and merging that with the design, the physical aspect. Yeah. I don't know why that, like, what just comes to mind for me is, so we started, I started flying a drone, which is maybe one of the more cliche things to say in this day and age about a year ago, but I'm trying to take it seriously and respect the laws of the air and, and of the FAA. And a big part of getting your certification for the FAA is learning how to read sectional charts or sectional maps hmm. and talk about an old mapping system. It's it's at once extremely beautiful and incredibly difficult to read because there's just so much information on these maps. Interesting. Um, you'll have to pull one up after we hop off this podcast. But Absolutely. I have a greater appreciation for mapping and and what it takes to design a map after I've jumped into that world wholeheartedly because it's it's uh it's pretty complex. Yeah. What's interesting is it's it's applicable to designing a website or designing environmental signage. It's like layers, right? When mm. I always describe a website or even wayfinding an environmental signage as going into a grocery store. From the user experience side, from the moment you're driving past it on the road, you see the sign, you need to know where to pull in. Mm. Then you drill in a little bit further and you need to know how to enter. Then you get in there, you need to know general direction of produce, general direction of you know cold goods or any of the paper goods. And then when you get closer to the aisle, it's, okay, now I see generally like eight to 10 indicators of right. what's inside of the aisle. Yeah. Then when you get in the aisle, it's the product and then the price. So there's these layers of a retail mm. experience that is exactly how a map works. Exactly. Yeah. That's interesting. I have I have a note written down here that you and in, in a previous article I read described yourself as an urban studies geek. And so when you were going through school and you were kind of observing the world around you and arguably getting more and more into maps and what they mean and for this idea of the function of a map outside of the actual physical map, like you just alluded to retail, for example, getting into a store and finding what you're looking for. Did that all kind of happen at once or was that sort of like a culminating moment in your in your studies where you realized, okay, this mapping thing goes well beyond this, this physical thing I'm touching? I think information design is a constant changing element amongst how our mediums and channels shift, right? So I related it to a website or signage design. Mapping is just one form of that information design. Mm. And when it comes to careers, the whole reason I love coming on podcasts like this and sharing is because you don't really know you're designing your career until pretty much hindsight occurs right. and yeah. you're 10 years out. And, you know, Malcolm Gladwell always says that you become an expert at 10,000 hours. I think I did the math once in 10,000 hours. It breaks down to, I think, like seven or eight years. So it takes about seven or eight years to become a quote-unquote expert in what you're doing. And my road in particular was that first realization that urban transformation is something I want to be a part of, then dialing in and going all in on Philadelphia and being a part of that change with investing in uh, neighborhood change in South Philly and some very interesting stories there. And then really going back and saying, okay, mapping's great, urban development and neighborhood, let's say, 
community involvement is amazing and this is all what I want to be doing. The truth is mapping isn't really profitable. So the joke was on my mom when I (laughs) taught myself logo design and web design and created an agency, which was far more profitable Yeah, (laughs) and decided to have that agency kind of really be focused on urban transformation and redevelopment. And that agency, correct me if I'm wrong, was called At Media. Correct. Is that, is that right? So yeah. that was sort of the original agency model for you after school. Yeah. And, and it it since has disbanded from its original form back in 2013, if that's right. Right. How did that experience shape you as a as an entrepreneur, as a business owner, as someone who was you know, obviously on that trajectory of those 10,000 hours at that time. Yeah, the at media for me was a chance to build a company on something I wasn't quite sure I wanted to sort of build an agency. It was accidental. I was getting a lot of freelance work and the mapping gigs that I was getting were great. I actually was a part of the team that first developed the, the Street View product for Google. Mm. which was wild and super cool and cutting edge. But even Google figured out, well, people aren't going to pay for maps. They just kind of expect it, (laughs) which is a really crazy ride. It's an amenity right now. Exactly. Uh, An an internet-based amenity. And you really can't even figure out ways right now to totally monetize it, even for ways. But thankfully, you know, I built at Media with a former partner of mine and we were able to, build enough demand for logos and websites and content so that I could quit my full-time job. And we didn't know at the time that we wanted to be centered around anything in particular. We just loved making flyers for music and doing everything we could to get good work. And, you know, they all were a little bit centralized to Philadelphia. And I leaned into what I know best which is real estate development, neighborhood development, community involvement. And lo and behold, later that we just went our separate ways. And I think how it shaped me has been that when you feel in your gut that something's not right with any relationship and you're, you know, really trying to put your finger on it, like what's not right here? What's not right here? For me in my business and personal life, my partner was just not being honest about who he was Mm. and it affected the business and of course us personally. Sure. And thankfully I was able to catch that relatively early and regrouped and rebuilt the team. And the team was amazing. We had about five people at the time and now those people are core leaders and we've built amazing new business called Cohere that's centered around urban revitalization and projects that are really involved with placemaking and making, we hope, cities help reach their full potential. Yeah. Let me run down a quick rabbit hole there. So if anyone happens to be listening to this podcast and they are, they heard what you just said about a partnership or relationship issue in business and they're, they feel that in their gut, what advice would you have for them just off the cuff right now? Yeah. What's interesting is I have about three clients going through this right now where for one reason or another, they have to separate from their business partner. In some cases, that business partner feels like a life partner because they've been with them for 10, 15, 20 years. And you put a lot of trust into that relationship. 
And when you feel like you can't get that eye-to-eye conversation going, it's just harder and harder to get what feels like the truth from them. Or even worse cases, you sometimes want to avoid it yourself because it only results in a conversation that goes nowhere. It's really the point in time where you've got to say, do I want to continue this old story? Mm. Brene Brown has this incredible book out right now where she talks about old stories or just stories we tell ourselves, right? She uses the example of interviewing with Oprah in a podcast and they wrap up the podcast and she's asking Oprah a question and Oprah kind of brushes the question off. Brene Brown goes in her head and she goes, oh, Oprah's always hated me. I know it. That's why she didn't call me back that one time. Mm. Like, I am just, oh, I really messed up that podcast interview. And she goes down a rabbit hole within a matter of like 14 seconds. Wow. That's what we all do in our head is these stories, right? And I think when you get to a place with a partnership where the story just keeps repeating itself and it's an old story and you're sick of it, you owe it to yourself and to everyone you care around you to just, do something yeah, about it. I love that. Thanks for walking down that rabbit hole with me. Yeah. <laughs> so the the company evolved into a company called Cohere. And I know this, the, the listeners do not, but what is the meaning of Cohere? Thanks for asking. You, you really did your homework and it's <laughs> impressive. That makes for a really good host. Oh, thank you. Cohere is really a verb and it's the root word essentially in cohesive. That is ultimately what's always been our superpower is to unite stakeholders who sometimes are often siloed. Say, for instance, let's take urban development, where in order for really good, long-lasting, sustainable change to happen, whether it be as small as a multifamily apartment building or as big as you know, retail corridor being improved upon, you really need public entities and private entities to be working together. When you get them to align around a cohesive vision, a cohesive message, a cohesive narrative and story, you're bringing them together around values and goals that they already share. That is by far the thing that we've always done the best. I think when you do that, it often results in a cohesive experience for the target audience, right? That grocery store I mentioned when you're driving by, when you're pulling in, not just the signage, but the way people treat you, mm-hmm. the digital experience online before you got there. All components really need to be synced up and cohesive these days. And we're finding that now that we rebranded ourselves as Cohere and we're honing in on that core competency that we're really best at, we're attracting the right partners who can help us do that really well, like yourselves, and clients who want that. They don't want to be disjointed anymore. What was the origin story of the name? It's a really crazy story, I think at least, because I was banging my head against the wall for three years trying to figure out a name. We went from, I think, The Collective, which is overused already. I forget. I got to dig up some of the old (laughs) ones because it was tough. I bet. It's so hard to name a business. Naming for yourself or designing for yourself is one of the hardest things. I mean, anyone that has done that before understands how difficult it is to name yourself or define yourself or design for yourself. It seems so easy when you're working on client projects because it just comes so easily because, well, you know, at the end of the day, it's not you. But once it is you, you're in the hot seat and you realize how difficult it is. Oh, my gosh. I always say, as a branding agency, 
it's a very psychological process. And if we're doing our jobs best, we're helping you reach your full potential. And doing it on yourself is like a mind fuck because you are literally your own therapist. And that doesn't always turn out yeah. so <laughs> Or you don't really necessarily love every direction you head down and maybe what you find. Yeah, yeah. and you overthink it and you overanalyze it. And I, I gained a lot of empathy for our clients once I rebranded us. Mm-hmm. We rebranded ourselves. It was like, you know, rebrandings are such a transition. It's an identity crisis. It's like suddenly someone's telling you, or in this case, we were telling ourselves, we need a new wardrobe. We need a new haircut. We need to rename our child and we need to look and act and talk differently. That was really tough, a really tough transition, but it built a roadmap for others and we can guide them pretty well now. The name, the origin story, I love the word origin. I was at the time really what I would call a support creative consultant, an advisor of a effort in Fishtown in Philadelphia. So Fishtown is the equivalent of a Brooklyn. It's kind of outside of the core city, downtown districts. It's uh, really cool and funky. If you're ever in Fishtown, please give me a buzz. Okay. That's where my home is that I renovated and still frequent when I'm back from Brooklyn. And there is this really amazing restaurant called Mulherin's by a group that does a long-term stay apartment hotel that's just next level in design. And I really respect this group. I helped them out with a couple of things. And one of their their creative directors, his name is Dan O. He's a crazy character. He's just one of those guys that is so particular in the way he shows up from his outfit that has many layers. He looks like he stepped out of the old school Ralph Lauren catalog. <laughs> you can find him under the L, chain smoking cigarettes and probably drunk by 3 p.m. Sorry, Dan O. <laughs> One night I was really frustrated and told him, I don't know what to do anymore for this name. And he just said, all right, I'll be back. And he went around the block and he smoked a joint and he came back and he's like, I got it. And he just pulled up Webster's Dictionary and had Cohere. No way. It was wild. Wow. And you knew in that moment then? No, I, I had a really strong hunch. Nobody really uses that word. It's a verb to cohere, Mm -hmm. to connect, to bring people together, to be cohesive in nature. I was like, I'm not sure people are going to know the name and they're always going to go coherent. Well, of course I want to be coherent. Like, Mm -hmm. um, but before you know it, I call it the new car lens. If you're in the, if you're in the market for a new car and you know what you're looking for, say a Jeep Wrangler, you're going to suddenly see Jeep Wranglers everywhere. And then you're going to notice every Jeep owner waves to every other Jeep owner. And you're going to open your world up to these Jeeps. That's what had happened. And almost every new client meeting we were in, they were like, we just need to be more cohesive. (laughs) It was perfect then. Absolutely. Yeah. So with Cohere, why stick with this lane of kind of urban placemaking? I know that you've used the term urban vibrancy before and urban lifestyle. Shifting from agency 1.0 to agency 2.0, the modern Cohere why stick to that space? It's a really interesting time for cities. I always sort of reference this quote that by 2050, the UN states that 65% of the world's population will be living in urban destinations. 
there is a true demand for a change in lifestyle across the board. And if we're just talking about American cities, you're seeing what is the opposite of white flight in the 70s and 80s. And that is this flocking back to downtown. And I felt as though I was early in that wave about 17, 18 years ago myself and saw the trend and wanted to ride it, wanted to be part of the infill of supporting what was really dilapidated, kind of abandoned structure. Why build new if the structure we already need exists? And lo and behold, there has been what people call a reurbanization movement with a demand for and improving the way people, you know, not to be cliche, live, work, play. Mm. And so with the reuse of the buildings, which can also be called, I've heard it as adaptive reuse or, you know, whatever the development term might be for that. Is your focus becoming specifically on those projects that actually take into account previously used buildings before? Or is that just, you know, kind of a, a secondary component to a lot of the projects that you've found yourself working on? Yeah, we like to use an ideal client or project checklist that says, what do we think is the point of view of Cohere so that we can work with the people and the projects that really make us not just happy on a regular basis, but help cities truly reach their full potential. So Mm. if we think the art of branding is to help a person, place, or a thing reach their full potential, then our process should be to choose projects that help cities reach their full potential too. And because there is, you know, there's two parts of this increasing demand of downtown, let's call it, or urban lifestyles, whether it be empty nesters or or millennials really deciding to either stay or come back to the city. There's two parts to the change that we're seeing. One is this dystopia of stuff that looks the same. It's almost like suburbanite concepts coming into the city, construction and architecture that all feels Mm. vanilla and repeatable and not very unique to the neighborhoods or the city. And then there's the other projects that are truly unique and authentic to the neighborhood fabric, the history. They're not erasing it. They're not repeating the bad parts. They're learning from the past and creating some use of old buildings or sometimes even new construction too that truly utilizes what is there before and supports a new demand, whether it be co-working Mm. or, you know, cafes, of course, breweries and restaurants. But I think our intention is to be a part of the projects that truly help be the narrative of the city that is going to help it reach its full potential. It really reminds me of a conversation I had in the very first podcast with a local designer in Denver named John Hartman. And he is the main brand force behind a couple of our clients that we started with a a few years back, one of them being the Source Hotel, another being Zeppelin Station. And we got into this funny back and forth on the podcast about how there are so many projects that want to, on a new build, new construction, create a space that feels like something that it used to be. So it wants to make itself feel old or it wants to make itself feel distressed or it wants to use typefaces or fonts that have, you know, kind of the same knockout patterns in it. If you if you look at the lettering, you see that it's like kind of a repeating pattern on these typefaces. So clearly people notice that 
new construction is very different from real estate projects that take the time to reuse and revitalize what was there. And I think it's sort of appropriate that we're in a a co-working space right now in Denver that is a, a reappropriated old furniture store that has just sort of been stripped to its bones and then built back up as a co-working space and yet still called furniture. So that's that's pretty cool too. We've been dancing around the subject a little bit. Let's jump right into an example project that you're excited about right now. And I think maybe why you're in Denver yeah, <laughs> sure. today too. Yeah, this co-working space is super cool. So if anybody gets a chance to visit it, they should. And why we're here this week is Choice Market is a new concept that has one location currently in downtown Denver, but is now opening three more this year and will continue on that growth trajectory. It's been an exciting model. It's it's truly the convenience store sort of redeveloped and redesigned and disrupted. It's local products primarily, but does not alienate, you know, those who might want Doritos and Coca-Cola too. But it really gives a chance for the local uh, producer of consumer product goods, a new launching pad, because Whole Foods certainly really isn't that place anymore. I don't know if you remember, but Whole Foods used to be able to walk around and kind of taste and meet that person who was making the hummus. Mm. That doesn't really exist anymore with the volumes that Whole Foods requires for you to even get a chance to be on their shelf. Choice Market is this new like incubator of locally made products. And so it's about like local convenience and fantastic prepared meals there and meal kits. It's just an incredible example of solving for what the current landscape of food is looking like these days when it comes to, you know, delivery platforms or Mm. whole foods. And I'm really enjoying the growth that we're helping to steer with them. I hesitate these days being asked the question, why all in on urban and why all in on sort of adaptive reuse projects? Because the truth is we're being asked to participate in conversations that are a little bit further outside that wall now mm-hmm. as a result of working on projects that are we think are truly sustainable and helping cities grow for the better. You know, a lot of real estate developers or other small business owners have come back around to us and said, hey, retail's changing. Food and beverage is becoming the true anchor of the development of neighborhoods and cities. How do we help food and beverage restaurateurs and retailers really own that landscape and continue to grow in a really tough place. Yeah. You know, I think I read a statistic. It was East Coast cities. I think New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore, and D.C. combined. Their restaurant groups were reporting that restaurants this time last year in those cities were an average 22 to 23% profit margin. This time it's 11 to 14%. That's literally half. In one year's time, I couldn't imagine as a business owner. So we have to kind of adapt and help business owners get smarter, faster in their business models. And Choice Market is an example of some success that has afforded growth quickly. They're only a year and a half old. And their growth is going to start in Denver and go beyond that. The next location has... Fuel. So if you think of, I don't know, East Coast Wawa's or Sheets. Sheets. Well, I told you before the podcast, I'm, I'm, I come from Virginia and Sheets was the thing 
uh, when I lived back there. So yeah, yeah, completely understand what you're saying. How would you describe a Sheets? Oh man, how would I describe a Sheets? It's like the one-stop shop where you can go fill up. You can go in and get any kind of prepared meal that you want to get at their, um, I don't remember what it's called. Do you remember what it's called? I think it's called MTO, mm. made to order. Yes. I think that's what it's called on the inside. It's funny you ask that. They have this pretzel bun that I used to get just like a breakfast sandwich with a pretzel bun while my car was refueling outside. So funny that you mentioned that. Yeah. I love that you gave me a craveable item that you wanted to reorder constantly. You're yeah, probably yeah. drooling yeah. over it right yeah. now. Yeah. Because that's the idea at Choice Market. It's uh, not just local products, but it's like, how do we favor sort of the changes in the way people are eating, what they prioritize? So a lot of vegan and vegetarian and evangelical ambassadors of the brand for them right now. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't want to alienate anyone again, but we do want to prioritize smarter choices. Yeah, I was going to say Sheets maybe isn't serving the vegan menu at this point, but I see what you're saying with Choice making the conscious decision to have a menu that maybe kind of pushes people towards smarter decisions on the meal front. That's exactly right. Mm, That's great. So I want to sort of loop all this back in full circle. So we, if we think about where our conversation has come from, it's Temple University, mapping, urban observations, design, technology. And I guess when I take a step back and look at, you know, a case study like Choice Market, and you sent over a couple notes beforehand too that I'm just referencing here, it is really intriguing to me how you sort of have pulled that urban knowledge and sort of the context of your background into a company that is uh, really looking to build something new within, it seems like, within an urban fabric specifically and, and, and all of the cues that you must take from a strategy perspective, from a messaging perspective, certainly from a design perspective, to build something like Choice Market up from the ground to be not just another restaurant or not just another small batch chain. That must feel really good for you. It, it must feel like that 10,000-hour milestone at this point. That's funny because I think only when you take the 10,000-mile view, the mm. high mile, uh, what do you call it, the mile high? Mile high city. Yeah. yeah. Do you take a step back and kind of have appreciation for that? I try to do that regularly. Meditating really helps. But, you know, you forget how many layers all come together and are really useful for brands and the people who are growing them. I think one way that it's paying itself back now to really hone in on intuition and listen to yourself at every stage of that, you know, let's say career development or really life journey, the reward for that is coming in all types of forms now. It's Cohere doing well. It's sharing in equity in some of these brands has been the way for me to really apply my personal attention because as an agency owner, you can unfortunately get busy at running your own agency versus helping really grow the brands that you work with. And truthfully, they can't afford me to be acting CMO level, like really caring a lot about their next site location and how demographics play into how they should be branding and marketing themselves. So to be getting equity is like a huge win and a dream. And we only put it into action in 2019, so it's new. But it definitely is one of those moments where you're going, okay, I was I was on the right path. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did that come about? Is that something that you started as a business owner thinking about 
years ago, or is that have has that been something new? You know, I know that you said you put it into action in 2019, but where did that come about? Because I'm yeah. sure a lot of business owners don't even think about that in design, development, creative spaces. Yeah, I thought about it for a long time. We have a brand we work closely with, Marquee & Co., and she has three different restaurant brands that are all vegan, Hip City Veg, Barb and & Bon, and Charlie Was a Sinner. They're based in D.C. and Philadelphia, and... I've been working with her for five years. So we went from one location to seven. I come back around telling her, like, I think your target audience is really graduating from regular fast food because it's vegan fast food, the Hip City Veg. Mm. And it's not cool anymore to be seen at McDonald's or walking around with a McDonald's bag, but it is cool to be seen with a Hip City Veg bag. So let's lean into that and and target your audience. And she's like, wow, you're right. Let's do that. And mm. there's more validation with the choices you're making. And I, I started realizing like, I'm doing more here than just one project. It's a partnership. And so I got the guts about a year ago to say, you know, I think that this information and commitment is worth a little bit more. Yeah, than this is valuable enough to be more than just a, a monthly check. Exactly. Coming to the business. Exactly. And truthfully, I realize I'm of the moment. I'm really obsessed with this idea right now, like of the moment. It's never going to happen this place and time and who you are right now with your background again. And for me, I'm representative of a major core audience that people want to talk to. We call it like the the yogi mom, Mm. Um, although I'm not a mom, but mid-30s, white female, they tend to drive market decisions. That's the Whole Foods customer. That's the Sweet Green customer. And I'm looking around and thinking, wow, there's not many people in the boardroom that look like me. I I have a valuable voice and I should really be unafraid to ask for long-term value add. So if I care about your business enough to ask for two, 3% equity in it, that means I'm here for like three to five years. I'm not going anywhere. Yeah. So I, I want to sort of come, I don't know if it's full circle or just in a different direction, but I, I, I want to touch on this while we have you. And that is the reurbanization topic again, because I know that, you know, that is a huge part of the work that you do. And it's a huge driver in, in who you choose to work with and why you're choosing to work with them. How would you sort of bucket the example of Choice Market? into that space of reurbanization, how do the two intersect? Like where does your strategy and your thinking and your involvement in a brand like that intersect with sort of the value set of reurbanization and kind of the drivers behind that that you've clearly built over years and years now? Yeah. I think how that question lands with me is also the question we're asking ourselves, which is, we're being asked to participate in food conversations more often. And, you know, the previous experience was more heavily real estate. So how are the two related? And the truth is we're seeing that it's about community, right? Choice market, for instance, the reason choice market can exist, it's basically a healthier 7-Eleven. The reason it can thrive right now is because of that core audience that wants to live in a building with amenities. And one of those amenities be a really healthy, locally driven convenience store. Mm -hmm. They can have their, you know, breakfast sandwich that's craveable. They can have their 
quinoa bowl, or, you know, they can be recovering from a hangover the next day and get a bacon, egg, and cheese. There's choices, not to be cheesy. And the the building becomes uh, a better place because of it. One resident at the downtown location said, I couldn't imagine living anywhere without a choice around it. So suddenly this becomes a placemaking project. It's about the real estate developer realizing that choice market in and near his or her project is more valuable as a result. So how do you then, you know, make up for the gaps in food and beverage profitability going down because of labor costs and food costs? And figure out packages of brands that go together with real estate projects that are transforming the sort of landscape of the neighborhood. Yeah. So I think what we're finding is that our experience is lending itself valuable to truly creating community and value for a user of that neighborhood day and night. Mm, it makes perfect sense. It yeah. makes perfect sense because you think about you think about these broker broker based websites or these you know development websites, and oftentimes you'll see maps on them. Some of them are really well designed, and some of them are are, are less attractive. But they often have you know the local neighborhood amenities. What's around there? And, you know, if you see the typical McDonald's, Seven Eleven, you know the chain restaurants, it's a little underwhelming. But I can completely see how if you start to sprinkle in something like a choice market and another sort of small batch boutique, uh, you know, concept, that that becomes suddenly far more intriguing to a future renter, leaser on the building type, right? So it makes it makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, and I think we have a responsibility as people who are in the placemaking industry or business, let's call it, which is a, a changing group of people, right? Public entities, private, little mom and pops, web developers, everyone who has an influence on telling the story of that area. We have a serious responsibility to making certain that we're not just bulldozing what exists already, that we've got to protect the true authentic nature and feeling and vibrancy and personality of that neighborhood. I used to always want to say really loudly on our website, like we can't brand a place Mm. because it really is about what's there, but there should be regular conversations about how to maintain what was really the draw in the first place. Right. There's a difference between the existing fabric and inserting value add to the existing fabric and bulldozing down a neighborhood and putting new things there that you think people might want. Right. And that's a clear differentiator. Even in the neighborhood that we're in now, you can just walk by an establishment and tell that concept that entrepreneur thought about the fabric of the neighborhood and that one didn't. Yeah. It's very clear. Yeah. Or, you know, worst case and sort of an unfortunate reality is that a lot of real estate developers and a lot of brokers aren't the most innovative, creative people. Brokers in particular, you know, that industry hasn't been disrupted in 150 years with the exception of co-working now. So they sort of plug and play what they think is cool and it starts to become this manufactured look and everything has reclaimed wood on it and neon signs and they think it's going to draw the crowd and crickets. So, you know, we've been cautious when being brought into those conversations. Like, what do we do now? 
it's hard to say no, but you got to own the no. Not necessarily letting people fail on their own, but you know, if you're only here to check boxes, that's not good enough anymore. Mm. I think that goes back to what we talked about earlier with, you know, there's using, there's reusing, and then there's building new and slapping a cool logo on it or what a business might perceive as being really cool. And then you take a step back and you realize, wow, this just looks like all the other 50 other of these things across the country. It's not really all that, that unique. Right. I have a question for you. Okay. <laughs> so you're all about asking me why double down on reurbanization. <laughs> what made you say, okay, let's pivot. Let's go all in on what we're seeing as far as transformation in urban cores. What was the light bulb moment for you? You know, for our business, Authentic Form and Function started as just a, a typical web agency, a digital agency. And, you know, the first few years we were working with every client under the sun. And that is both good and bad because you have a lot of unique conversations with a lot of different people, really nice people in, in a variety of industries. But there's no differentiator there for us as, as entrepreneurs, as business owners. And so we, we, we kind of took a step back a few years ago and said, we need to really focus in on a core competency within a core industry. And for us, we had a, a couple of industries we were considering, but we really, again, took a step back and looked at a couple of our uh, really early development partners, Zeppelin Development with the Source Hotel and Zeppelin mm-hmm. uh, Station, which was recently opened. and Which is super dope. Yeah, it's very it's a very cool space, really well designed and really thoughtful. And your work complemented it really well. Thank you. And and so it was fun for us, kind of going back to what you said, not to point the mirror back to you, but you know, you start to do these projects and you realize that they're really a lot of fun and you're doing something that feels valuable and you're helping to tell a story and and, and a lot of times in this industry it's creating a a, a place or a memory for people that are going to end up there. And what is it that they remember about going to the Source Hotel or booking that hotel room? You know, on the digital side for us, what's the touch point like on their mobile phone? And so these are things that we became more and more interested in and more and more excited about. And so that's why we kind of made that that cognizant shift to work with people making places. And for us, we sort of use the loose term of the urban space because we don't want to alienate anyone in particular. But yeah, it was a very conscious decision and one that we're, we're really excited about. Yeah, have you ever read The Thousand Fan Rule? The Thousand Fan Rule? Yes. I, I haven't, but I've, I'm familiar with The the Hundred Fan Rule. Is it Thousand Fan oh, Rule? Oh, wow. Yeah, it's a Thousand <laughs> Fan Rule. I, okay. guess, I guess somebody out there is getting yeah. even more exclusive. Yeah, it must have been like The Thousand Fan Rule version 2. It came out on Amazon That's six months later. amazing. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, there's about 10,000 books on Amazon alone with the title yeah. Happiness in it. So I'm sure somebody wrote the hundred fan rule after they read the thousand. But fan. but what is the what is the book called again? A thousand fan rule is an essay. It's a really short, easy read. It was an essay, okay. And I think we both really adopted that without even realizing it by being unafraid to hone in on who our target audience mm-hmm. is and really owning our no. If you're everything to everyone, you said under the sun, yeah. right? Then you're really easy to replace and not honing in on a true point of view. Right. And if you were doing the same 
thing that you're doing now for a bunch of different industries, it would probably still be really great work, but you wouldn't have expertise in any one right. you know, station or stall. Some bit of advice that I have for people out there about that 10,000 hour rule. I really love to picture, I think you've painted a really good picture and map of my career and how it's not just built a highly creative, valuable agency, but with the point of view that's now valuable to others that can be brought in to create wealth for ourselves and for the brand. That's incredible. And it's a great map to follow. And a shortcut to it that I used for myself and now I use for others is if you picture a Venn diagram, two circles overlapping each other, and you right in the middle is that sweet spot, right? What if you put 5,000 hours in one and 5,000 hours in the other? So for me, mine was urban redevelopment, community involvement, mapping, urban planning. And on the right-hand side was graphic design, branding, marketing, web, social media. It all together created a completely unique life experience that made it easier for people to spot when they needed it. Yeah, I love that. We're definitely going to put a link in the show notes to that essay. And I feel like we need an illustration now of that Venn diagram. I'll, I promise I'll be held accountable to okay. writing a blog on it and you could link Perfect. to that. So I want to, I know that we're, uh, we're kind of coming down the home stretch here and I, and I really want to, I want to get your, your thoughts on the long-term impact of Cohere across cities and the communities within those cities. I know that's a tough question, but what, what mark are you leaving or, or are you trying to leave? Yeah, I really couldn't answer that one when you first asked it. And then it dawned on me today in our meetings with Choice where we were learning how to better select sites for the brand so that the brand can have most success. And one of the key components to the brand values is about sustainability and really being that launching pad for new local products so that we can put products that have a a less negative impact on the environment first and help people change the way they eat. And while we're doing that, we're also consciously choosing to be on the cusp of neighborhoods that are emerging that might be in or around a food desert so that we're accessible to people who maybe haven't eaten that way before. And it dawned on me that our role at Cohere is about making those choices more often for brands so that they succeed long-term and that we can be a part of this small incremental change that over time is long-lasting so that we don't see what we saw in the 70s and 80s with American cities, which was, you know, flight that resulted in abandonment and disinvestment. Let's never see that again for American cities in our history and let's be a part of long-lasting change. Wow. I could not have said that better myself. Good job. That was a very difficult question. And you, and you wow, I'm impressed. Thank you. I appreciate um, the chance. So I, I want to, I kind of want to bring us now, we're sliding in the home. Final question. You have very interesting things to say. Your, your business, Cohere, is doing really terrific things. We'll be linking, obviously, to the work that you're doing in the show notes. I'm always curious about this question. Who are you paying attention to? Who else is doing groundbreaking, cool work that comes to mind? 
I love to reference brands that are a little bit outside of what I'm doing now. And we're, all of our projects right now are centered on place or food and oftentimes where they intersect. And so some really cool brands right now that are doing interesting things to me are like North Face. They are unafraid to take a political stance and using design as a way to, from both product and then just sort of content point of view, to make a stand politically. So they, I don't know if you've seen it, but I'm sure Coloradans have at least been a little more engaged than your average New Yorker. They are like saying like walls are for climbing Mm. and really taking a stand against Trump's ridiculousness. And I am just so happy to see that kind of really on-brand participation in political and social issues. Yeah, Their products are leaning more towards their retro look. They're just, they're really in a good stride right now. People should be paying attention. Yeah, I love that. So tell the world what you are up to, where they can find you, links, web links, social accounts, anything else we can throw in here as we wrap up. Thanks for the chance to end on the note of uh, calls to action. (laughs) We all love that. What do you want the user to do next? Exactly. Decisions, decisions, and choices. How can people find you? (laughs) I'm really into this uh, give you one lane answer, one channel. There's only one route. And if you want to take it, yes or no. Let's do it. At AntTweetNetty, A-N-T-W-E-E-T-N-E-T-T-E on Instagram. I'm about to launch something really cool in the form of some brand collaborations that I think people will be really interested in. That sounds great. Antoinette, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. Transforming Cities is brought to you by Authentic Form and Function, the digital design and development team that just might be a perfect fit for your next urban project. If you're a new listener, you can follow along at authenticff.com slash transforming cities, or you can simply subscribe through your favorite apps, including iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.